This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Dr. Daniel Dennett is a philosopher, professor at Tufts University, and author of several books, including Breaking the Spell and Darwin's Dangerous Idea. His research also led to the formation of The Clergy Project, an online forum for closeted religious leaders who no longer believe in God. His latest book is called From Bacteria to Bach and Back, and it's all about how our minds evolved. Dr. Dennett, thank you so much for being with me. I'm delighted to join you, Heman. So let's get to the heart of of this book, because why don't you describe your central thesis about uh, what it's about? How do we get from bacteria to Bach? How did our minds evolve, you know, in like 30 seconds? (laughs) Well, uh, the fact that our minds evolved is more important than a lot of, uh, I think, people have realized that uh, many of the features of, of our minds and of consciousness that seem baffling or mysterious or just inexplicable uh, at first, if you set them all in the setting, the naturalistic setting of evolution, they begin to make more sense. And in particular, uh, uh, we can see how our minds, our human minds, depend on a secondary process of evolution, cultural evolution, which has filled our brains with thinking tools that we didn't have to do design ourselves because they evolved culturally. Mainly that's language, but all the things that language enables, all the methods of thinking, the, the uh, technology, uh, uh, the theories and the rest that only we have access to. And it's what gives our minds power. It's what gives our brains power. Uh, my, my analogy, and it's a very strong analogy actually, is with the um, apps you can put on your phone. If you have a phone that doesn't have any apps on it, it's not all that powerful. Uh, every time you add an app, you add a new competence, a new set of abilities, new things you can do. Well, our, our brains are loaded with thousands and thousands of apps which we acquire growing up in our cultures, and most of those apps were not invented by anybody. They evolved the same way the bird's wing evolved. That makes it sound like other animals, other creatures could, in theory, develop the same quote-unquote apps. Well, they could in theory. And uh, I think the proper way of saying it is we're the only species so far on the planet that has evolved uh, these capabilities. Uh, It's uh, plausible, if extremely unlikely, that some other species could uh, uh, pick up the same set of habits or similar sets of habits. Um, And the fact that it's extremely improbable shouldn't tell us uh, too much because the whole point of evolution is that it's the amplification of extremely improbable events. Let me ask you a completely theoretical question. It's always a fun mind game to ask this uh, to scientists, but you know, if we could rewind the tape of life and start over from when we were single-celled organisms, if we were to evolve again, or at least you know, starting evolution from a point where you know, Homo sapiens were around, do you think we would develop the same set of apps or, or another type of app? Or would, is this unique to our development this one time around? I think, I think in a way, the question's ill-posed. Uh, it depends on how far you want to wind back the tape. Uh, uh, you wind back the tape, uh, the, the existence of, uh, of uh, eukaryotes, of 
of multicellular organisms made up of complex cells is itself uh, uh, due to an accident that occurred uh, uh, more than two billion years ago. And uh, it was an accident. It didn't have to occur. After all, there was a billion years before that when it didn't occur, when there was only single-celled uh, living forms. And, and uh, if you'd been in a time machine back then, and so, well, we've had a billion years of these uh, uh, single-celled, simple cells uh, floating around in the water. Uh, uh, I guess that's all that's ever going to happen. Well, you would have been uh, majestically wrong. Uh, so you, that's what I meant about, about the uh, amplification of the improbable. Uh, who knows? Uh, evolution uh, cannot really be predicted in that sense, although we can, people, some people say, well, that means it's not really science. No, we can make uh, billions of uh, confirmable predictions based on evolutionary theory, but they're predictions of the scientific kind, not not the uh, soothsayer kind. For instance, uh, I can predict with with virtual certainty uh, what the what the genes are going to be like in any bird you bring me from any place on the planet. Uh, before I look at it, I can already tell you, well, I like a little help from some uh, biologists <laughs> and geneticists because I'm not myself, uh, uh, you know, an adept uh, a sequencer of genomes. Uh, but, but there's simply no question at all about what we'll find inside that bird. Now, this gets to the heart of something that we've long talked about where <laughs> Uh, when it comes to the God of the gaps theory, this idea that uh, how our consciousness consciousness evolved, that's always been one of those questions that, you know, in the case of evolution, we, we didn't really have an answer to. And it's one of the places that creationists, intelligent design proponents, they always say, well, that had to be an intelligent designer that had to be God. And you're kind of going at the heart of that argument saying, no, you don't have to fill that gap in with God. We have legitimate theories as to how this stuff could have happened. Was that kind of the, the reason you wanted to tackle this subject in particular, or was this just, you know, this is the work I've been doing for like 50 years and I wanted to bring this all together. Um, I think it's much more of the latter. I, uh, uh, but I, I certainly, uh, relish the fact that my account, uh, recognizes that the, particular emergence of us has some really puzzling aspects to it. Like how did, how did language ever evolve is, is a major puzzle still in evolutionary theory. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to do in the book is show, but don't give up because we've got some amazing ideas about how it could happen. Uh, uh, and if you, uh, acquire a few thinking tools that I try to provide for you, uh, you'll be able to see not one, but a variety of different paths that'll take you all the way from bacteria to Bach uh, without any mystery, without any skyhooks. Now, what is it that you think we still don't understand about our mind and consciousness? Well, there's m many purely technical scientific things that we haven't uh, really gotten to the heart of yet, but uh, but uh, more important from my point of view as a philosopher, I guess, is that a lot of people, most people, 
still have a very hard time inverting their perspective. How it can be that their that their conscious experiences are the way they are without any miracles. Um, it's tremendously tempting to think there's this inner show going on in a special medium somewhere. If it's not between your ears, it's in another dimension or something. It's the, the theater of consciousness. And that is an uh, apparently eternally tempting idea, and it's just wrong. And I think we can show that it's wrong. The hard part is then saying, well, if that's wrong, what on earth can account for the way it seems to be right? And that's been a major preoccupation of mine for, for decades. And I, I think my new book sheds further light on that and makes it easier for people to take that last step and twist their heads around the idea. And then all of a sudden you can see, oh, I get it. Uh, 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 there aren't any such things as qualia after all. Uh, uh, there just seem to be qualia, and here's why. Now, do you think we can ever get to the point that we can, where we can understand our mind and consciousness? I think in your book you make a comparison that, you know, we don't necessarily understand everything about our mind and consciousness as opposed to a natural phenomenon like gravity. You know, we understand that one pretty well. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we could understand our minds as well as we understand something natural like gravity? Um. Oh, I think so, yes. I, but you have to bear in mind that that there's understanding and then there's a sort of an imaginary complete, complete, complete understanding. And we already know uh, from, you know, theoretical work by Alan Turing, for instance, on the, on the halting problem, that no information system can contain a complete representation of itself. So, so uh, when you use your own brain to understand your own brain, uh, you can make tremendous progress and you can understand it as it were with a bird's eye view and it, at various grain levels, but you can't ever achieve the perspective of the Laplacean demon uh, uh, about your own mind. You couldn't have such an understanding of your own mind that you could predict every future state. Okay, let me ask you about this title, because it, it's a little freaky. The, the bacteria to Bach and back. Let's talk about this back thing. I assume this is like some thinly veiled Trump reference. Are we all going to die? Like, are we going back to bacteria? Well, we, no, we are all going to die, but that's not <laughs> <laughs> I, as I think you know. Um, <laughs> I've heard. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, not, it's not a reference to Trump, but it is a reference to... Uh, recent developments, which, in fact, uh, have a lot to do with explaining the uh, curious uh, success of the, of the Trump system at the moment. Francis Crick once made a joke about what he called Orgel's second rule, evolution is cleverer than you are. Hmm. Uh, and there's some real truth in that. It's not that evolution has foresight and is intention and intentions. It's not. It's not a purposeful uh, process, but it's brilliant at generating useful uh, design from masses of data and uh, the data of all those lives lost in the course of evolution. 
And what we've recently developed in artificial intelligence and related fields are a whole variety of what we might call Darwin-esque processes, deep learning, uh, 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 Bayesian networks, and several others that are amazingly good at pulling pattern out of noise, of, of extracting information from in humongous databases and then making it available to us. So in other words, you can have an evolutionary process that does the heavy lifting for you. So now we are using these more and more. They're a wonderful new set of tools. But one of the features of them that, that worries many of us is that when we use them, we don't understand how the machines got the results they did we do, in, we do in general. We understand them well enough to know why we ought to rely on them in general, although not always. Uh, but what this may mean is that with regard to large areas of science, we will put ourselves in the same position that we're, most of us are now in or our children are with regard to, to uh, navigation and driving. GPS uh, has, is just so good that people's ability to read maps uh, and to plan routes uh, uh, with, in their own heads is, is plummeting, uh, use it or lose it. And it looks as if comprehension itself is beginning to be abandoned as a goal in science and as a goal in life. Why bother comprehending if you've got this hardware that can do the Darwinian hard work of uh, 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 extracting information, and we'll just we'll just trust it. So we're we're on the verge of becoming very very much more dependent on our technology than we already are, and that's dangerous because that technology, in spite of it, the brilliance of its design, is actually much more brittle and fragile than a lot of people are prepared to realize. And we could have an almost unimaginable. Uh, catastrophic collapse of the whole system. It could happen tomorrow or next week. And, and that wouldn't throw us all the way back. To, it wouldn't mean that bacteria would resume uh, the uh, control of the planet, although that's one prospect. But it could mean that Homo sapiens, our species, was pretty well removed from any human civilization and culture altogether and, and revert to a condition not unlike uh, uh, Mad Max and Road Warrior. <laughs> what, what sort of what sort of catastrophe are you talking about? What could theoretically happen that would uh, ruin the dependence we have on technology? Could the internet, the whole internet, could it go down? Could it collapse? Yes. I talk with experts who say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It will happen. For how long will it go down? Nobody knows. Well, so what? Couldn't we live without the Internet for a while? Yes, but the Internet is such a convenient and excellent way of doing things that too many things have become really dependent on them. It is not unlikely that if the internet went down, it would take the power grid with it. It would take the television news with it. It would take cell phones with it. 
we would be plunged into electronic darkness. Well, what's so bad about that? Until in the 19th century, everybody was in electronic darkness. And we got on quite well with, with uh, 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 modes of transportation and communication. Yes, but today we're not used to that. We don't know how to cope with that. If, if we were plunged into electronic darkness, we would panic. And the damage done by the panic could, could really destroy civilization. I think people would do all sorts of regrettable and ultimately stupid things, but they would do out of fear and out of uh, uh, hasty reasoning about what can I possibly do to protect my loved ones and myself? Um, with whom do I join forces? And, and we could really be in the soup. Now, going back to the thesis of your book, though, is this if this is something that may happen in the future at some point or something, is this something we could even avoid? Is there a way to not be as dependent on this stuff anymore and get back to, you know, our roots in a sense? Or yes, there is. Yes, w- there is. What can we do? What, what we can do is, first of all, start anticipating this in some detail and talking about it and getting people in general to understand that this is a problem and to recognize that the great enemy is panic. And now we can ask ourselves, well, how could we prevent that panic? Well, panic is extremely contagious. So what you have to do is you have to nip it in the bud because once it gets underway, uh, everybody gets swept along. So we have to have panic absorbers. We have to have uh, things in place that will prevent people from, it will more or less immunize them against spreading panic. And what could do that? Well, it's got to be other memes. It's got to be other thinking tools, other apps that we install in our brain so that when this terrible thing happens, we're already, we have, the first thing that occurs to us is, now let's see, where's, where's my local panic absorber group? Where do they meet? <laughs> and what this means is we have to have local, bottom-up community groups who have not only been thinking about this and knowing who's got the electric generators, who are the ham radio operators, uh, who knows how to run a mimeograph machine so we can put posters up around in the streets, um, uh, who can fix who can fix a, a diesel engine, where is there some extra fuel, and so forth and so on. And if it was just common knowledge among people that – If this happens, I know where to go or I know who to consult. Then that's what you do. Instead of running off half-cocked and arming yourself and and starting to dig a fallout shelter or doing something uh, really stupid like that, you more or less calmly join forces with your local group and see what they already know and see how you can help. And creating such a network of trust Uh, among local groups of people. And we would have to, I figure we would have to create, uh, uh, you know, 100,000, more than 100,000 of these around the country. Uh, And they should be pretty much self-creating. This is what I see as a putting in place a social network of social networks of small groups, which could absorb the panic 
and keep everybody together and calm and nobody worrying about starving. Uh, let's say, let's say for 48 hours and that would probably be time to get things up and running again. Uh, and, uh, uh, it, it would be a great, uh, experience on that optimistic note. That's a literal social network right there. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about the writing process in general. Cause one thing I always appreciate about your books is that, you know, at the ends of all of your chapters, you, you summarize everything so well and you kind of prepare us for the next one. Like we're all in on this journey together. And I mean, I know a lot of authors do that. Like, here's what's coming ahead. But you're very deliberate in how you summarize what you're saying, how you prepare us at the beginning of a chapter or something. I'm just wondering, I don't see that style with a lot of authors. How did you develop that? I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, in uh, uh, Consciousness Explained, I had my summaries and predictions. I, I'm still doing it, but not quite so uh, self-consciously. Um, I guess the reason I developed it, the problem I th had to try to solve, was that, oh, ever since I was a fledgling philosopher professor, I've realized that my particular perspective has a lot of parts. And I can't summarize them in five minutes or ten minutes. Uh, I can't. You know, at a cocktail party, if somebody says, well, what's your view? <laughs> I'm in a bad position. I mean, unless I back him into a corner and say, you got 45 minutes? I'll <laughs> give you my view. Uh, uh, I, I just have to settle for giving a few pieces, and it's very unlikely that anybody will see how they might all fit together. So it's always been a problem for me to try to figure out which order in, uh, should I – expose these ideas and present them. And I run into these vicious circles. I have to explain A before anybody would understand B and B before anybody would understand C. But if I don't, if people don't already understand C, how are they going to understand A? And uh, I, I guess my, my ideal <laughs> would be to write a book that as you read it, you actually think, oh, wait a minute, now I see what he was doing back in chapter one. You go back and you read chapter one, and ah, now it comes clear. And you sort of cycle through the book, uh, looking back, looking forward, looking back, looking forward. And then if, it, you know, it, in my dream world, when you get to the end of the book, you start over again. And, and then it's all, oh, now I see how the pieces fit together. I was so pleased that Michael Gazzaniga in his review uh, in the Wall Street Journal ended by saying pretty much just that. This is a book to read and then read again. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what's your process for something as dense as this one? Because you have a lot of theories, you have a lot of analogies, and I'm wondering, do you, who do you run them by? Not just to make sure they're scientifically sound, but to make sure you're thinking about this the right way. Oh, good question. And uh, if you look at my preface, you'll see a lot of people get thanked. And my whole career, I have leaned heavily on colleagues, informants, and students to steer me, fix things that are not quite right, and particularly for students to look puzzled and 
frowny and baffled, which when I see that, uh, provokes me to try again harder. And out of many, many, many attempts to explain these ideas, uh, both, the, first of all, the ideas shift and change and get better. And also my ability to explain them, uh, gets better. And, uh, I lose track of who, whose uh, obstructionism, whose foot dragging, whose quizzical look uh, provoked me to come up with yet another analogy, yet another thought experiment. But, but uh, uh, it's a process that, that has been uh, cycling vigorously for 50 years. And this particular book, I know, is the culmination of a lot of the work you've done. But uh, in the particular writing of it, like how long have you been working on this specific book? Oh, I, I don't know how to calculate that or how <laughs> to answer because, uh, as you say, there's parts of it that I pretty well worked out in talks and earlier papers you know, more than a decade ago. Uh, uh, and one of the hardest things about writing the book was coming up with fresh ways of saying things which I thought I'd said pretty well the, the last time and not wanting to just quote myself uh, and not wanting to write a book that people uh, couldn't read if they hadn't read my earlier books. I wanted it to be a standalone book. And that was a, uh, that was a tough, that was a very tough writing job. And uh, 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 I think the hardest writing job I've ever had. Well, I have one last question for you before I let you go, which is I saw that you have an art collection going up soon um, called Haptic Whittles, which I love that name. But I, two questions about this, I think. One is where do you find time in all of this to do art, to make these things that you're going to display? And where does that side come from? <laughs> Well, uh, uh, first of all, the pieces that are going to be displayed uh, are all of them uh, 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 at least 20 years uh, old. I, uh, I have, haven't done as much uh, art in the last 20 years as I have done uh, uh, earlier. But I started out, when I was in college, it, it was, was I going to be a sculptor or was I going to be a philosopher? And I had some... Uh, initial successes in in both realms, and uh, uh, when I went to Oxford to do my graduate work, I uh, I stopped off in Athens <laughs> on the summer before and got a big block of pendelic marble and began hacking away at that uh, to, just because I wanted to get some familiarity with with marble as a medium in sculpture, uh, and then over the years. Uh, made pieces in many different media and uh but although i showed pieces in galleries when i was when i was in college really i uh i grew to dislike the art world not artists but critics gallery owners and buyers i grew to dislike them so much that i decided well i'll just, i won't do this I'll, I'll give them to people or I'll just keep them myself or they're for friends and family. And so uh, I've pretty well shunned the art world. But this uh, a fellow, Nicholas Cueva, who heard about my pieces, 
began pestering me <laughs> very, very politely and very, very flatteringly about, oh, two or three years ago. And I kept saying, no, they're not for sale. No, besides, just, they're meant to be handled, but in a museum or in a gallery, people would be, I couldn't have all that many people come in and handle them there. Uh, uh, they might get broken or stolen or whatever. And so I put him off until his most recent uh, inquiry, and I thought, well, okay, let's see if we can do it. So they're, you're not going to be able to handle them, although that's what they're for, but they're going to be there under behind plexiglass, and there's a video, a carefully done video of somebody uh, manipulating them, handling them, and, and so you get to see how... Uh, uh, sort of seductive they are as things to explore in your hands. So if the internet goes down, we know what you're going to be doing. Oh yeah, I've, all, <laughs> I've always I've always got a very sharp jackknife in my pocket, <laughs> and it's always a piece of wood lying around somewhere. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Daniel Dennett. His new book is From Bacteria to Bach and Back. We'll have links to the book as well as his art exhibit in the show notes. Thanks again. Thanks, Hema. I enjoyed it very much.